Hello, listeners. Welcome to Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today, I am here with Catherine Liu, professor of digital media studies or just film media? And media film and media studies and author of the book virtue hoarders the case against the professional managerial class and you're working on another one too right now yeah. um, uh, it's tentatively called trauma as pmc content ah yes. we love it <laughs> we have talked often on the show about this problem so i'm really excited to have you on to talk about some things in higher ed. Joey Keegan, a guest I had on earlier, we touched on some things. The academy, especially the humanity, seems to be running into trouble. But this doesn't start with collegiate life or collegiate experience. It starts way earlier. And you touch on that in your book. I have some personal experience. I'm foreshadowing conversations we will have later. But let's start with something that doesn't get talked about enough, which is AP classes. And I think you have a story for us on that. Yes, yes, I do. And I just advanced placement classes are classes that really high achieving high schoolers can take for college credit. And so one of the great things about this originally was that it was going to allow you to fulfill a lot of your general education requirements before you went to college so that it would allow you free you up to specialize in whatever it was you were doing. There is, you know, since the 70s, a, a huge profit motive in this because the college board, which is nominally nonprofit, administers and grades AP exams. So you can get one to five, five being the highest. And the AP classes in American public high schools are baked in track classes where if you have a large urban high school, like the one I first attended, Mount Vernon High School, all of the AP classes and honors classes will have more white and Asian students. Mm. My time was only white students, some black students than me. But now, like, you know, <laughs> there's much more. There are many more Asian Americans. Mm -hmm. So, and then African Americans, lower income students, working class students take these regular courses. So, even though American education was in its like most idealistic terms and you know from Horace Mann to John Dewey described as you know democratic right making mm -hmm. quality education available for all if we're going to make people go to high school as this became law in the early 20th century we were going to guarantee good education for everyone then you know it turned out that segregation had created a two-tier system Brown versus Board of Education, you know, was supposed to strike down racial segregation in the South. There was enormous amounts of resistance to this through the 70s, through busing and integration. But the secret of American high school education is that you we've retained de facto segregation and sorting. Mm -hmm. And I'm not just saying by race, I'm saying mostly by class within the American high school, public high school system, where if you're in a working class family, or if your you know, family has problems putting food on the table, you're not going to be able to really focus on your AP exams, your AP classes. They're also classes that, you know, project college for you. And 67% of Americans don't go to college. So, mm -hmm. so there's that. And I know that you had, so then, so I was interested in like education, education reform for a long time. But one of the things that I found was that to improve the quality of education, all presidents from Reagan onward wanted to impose national standards, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was like Diane Ravitch, who's since come out against school reforms, was part of the Reagan task force that said, like, you know, we're in a national emergency in the 1980s because people are not reading in high school, so we're not doing well in math, and so we need to improve education. So this kind of thing gets, like, our dumbest president, George W. Bush, to put in No Child Left Behind mm -hmm. as a system of testing students to measure teacher performance, basically. You know, mm -hmm. it's like basically an oppressive instrument for teachers but so dial back to 2008 Obama gets elected like we're all so happy we're going to be liberated from the rule of the dunce caps and mm -hmm. um, we're going to withdraw from e Iraq we're going to reform Wall Street we're going to you know get these national standardized tests that have dumbed down teaching and students out of the schools and none of this happens but mm -hmm. what happens in 
education is really interesting because, and you'll talk more about this because yeah. Obama appoints as his education czar for what he's going to call common core, David Coleman, who like had, like Obama is a member of like PMC elites with like very, very, very small superficial edu- experience and like community organizing or yeah. nonprofit tutoring. It's just a bullshit um, <laughs> TV line for Ivy Leaguers who want to move up in um, mm-hmm. the liberal professions and become PMC elites. I mean, so David Coleman comes in and he's like a literature major. He was a literature major at Yale. He's younger than I am. I was a literature major at Yale. And he comes in and he imposed, and he's going to smarten up, you know, No Child Left Behind, which was so dumb. He's going to make it smart. And one of the things that they said that, you know, Common Core was going to do was to help high school students learn how to read complex texts. Mm-hmm. And so they were going, and you know, I know, Emmett, you've got a lot to say on this, but I'm just going to. No, I'm please, tee it up. Yeah. <laughs> on this. So, what a lot of these new Common Core things were going to do was ask, give you like a paragraph and then ask you to interpret it, like as a, and write about it. Like, so you have all these high school students, especially in um, advanced placement, the AP classes, having to prepare not only for the Common Core um, test, but for the advanced placement exam. So you're supposed to like, be able to do close reading, which at Yale at the time in literature was about taking literary tropes and then arriving at like some conclusion like unreadability or the allegory of this text is about a kind of representation of its own writing. I'm not, Mm -hmm. I I mean, I can go into it in more detail later if you guys want to, if you want to talk about this. But in any case, in my son's senior year of high school at a very, very high performing high school near us, he was Mm -hmm. taking an advanced placement English test. And this story for me has everything in it. It has PMC feminism, hashtag girls, girl boss. It has oh, the rise of the incel, the alt-right, <laughs> and it has common core and document-based questions and the demise of literature and literary thinking mm-hmm. all encapsulated in this. And Leo did not ever want me to write about this. I was like, I really want to, but he goes, no, no, you can't write about this. But now it's been a couple of years, so I feel like I can talk about it. So his AP English teacher assigns them The Giving Tree. Mm. You know that story by Jules Pfeiffer? We all yeah. know that story, right? Yeah. It's a children's book. But the reason why they were assigned to read this was so that they could do a close reading based on different methodologies, like an allegorical reading or a political reading or an aesthetic reading. I, I don't know what all the readings were. In any case, like, so it's a very com- compact narrative. Should I tell people what, I mean, everyone yeah. knows. Of yeah, I think it's a pretty common. a kind of like a countercultural children's book writer. And this book is about a little boy who grows up with a tree next to him. The tree gives him everything and grow, and he grows up. And at the end, the tree dies. He go, He's old and the tree kind of holds him and they both die together, right? Mm-hmm. But the tree sort of has given the boy every, wood, leaves, whatever. And it's very... So, the, so I mean, it's kind of an allegory of sac- maternal sacrifice, if you really mm-hmm. need to, if we can really spell it out. Giving, Absolutely. About yeah. the gift, right? So they're reading the story, and, and um, they're discussing it in English, getting ready for all their exams. And this, what um, my son described as, like, a troll, a little troll guy. And he mm-hmm. goes, oh, my God. You know, and raises his hand and goes, I think this story is about rape culture. Mm. And um, Leo and his friends, who are like jockey, you know, probably STEM guys, they just look at this guy like you're crazy, right? But the but the girls in the class, I'm going to call them girls because they're 17. Yeah, sure. They they got really really angry because they're like, yes, this is about rape. I mean, the boy is raping the tree. The tree is giving everything to the boy, and there's just like it's all about you know male domination and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. So Leo and his friend, who are both like very smart guys, who one his friend really does go into STEM. Leo's like in social sciences now. They they get very very angry and they say they raise their hands and they go that 
meeting takes away all the agency from the tree. This is right. not about rape. This is about giving and sacrifice. And so this girl goes up to his desk, stands up to his desk like, and, and says, you have no right to say that. Have you ever been raped? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> you can't beat it. <laughs> When I heard this, I was just like, this happened in an English class. This is unfucking believable Like, what mm-hmm. starts to troll becomes, rape culture becomes, like, this kind of position, like, politics of positionality where you mm-hmm. can't off, you can't speak about anything unless you've had the lived experience of it. And Leo was, like, really shocked. I mean, really shaken. And then the class is over. And his teacher, who's a male teacher, calls him over after class and goes, I hope you're okay. You know, I just like these discussions to go on, but, you know, I just want you to know that I had your back. But it was like, what? It was like such a abdication of any kind of authority or mediation. Yeah, or responsibility for yeah, what happens I mean, in the he, classroom. But he was probably afraid, right? Oh, yeah. If I'm in his position, I'm not saying shit if I want to hold on to my shit, job. Right? <laughs> so ha- welcome to peak... Woke Culture, AP mm-hmm. English Class 2018. I mean, the backdrop of all of this is, you know, Trump. Mm-hmm. It's the rise of the alt. So what starts as a trollish, I would say, like, incel alt-right mm-hmm. statement to make, you know, to fuck up the discussion of this. Yes, he's gets he's taking the piss, you know, like, that's what's happening. And a, a savvy teacher should have ways to diffuse that like that should have been diffused at that point but he was like i'm just gonna let this go on so what my feeling was after this is and then and then think about like it's 20 it's 2018 the economy is coming roaring back trump is in office we're all like really upset but the the background noise of my profession is that enrollments in english and the humanities are collapsing are Mm -hmm. on a deep, deep dive, right? And you could say like after 20, 2008, you have an economic crisis that makes mm-hmm. everyone terrified. People want to learn, want to study business. Like it's actually the PMC, the upper middle classes and the middle classes that are most afraid. So they want their kids to go into more practical. Allegedly lucrative. Professions. Yeah, whatever that means. But the article that I asked you to read says that after 2012, the economy in America really recovers for upper mm-hmm. middle class people. By 2018, like housing market, everything is doing really well. We don't see a recovery in humanities majors. We don't mm-hmm. see that collapse is continuing today. And what my theory was that I've, you know, informally proposed to you, and, you know, I still stand by it. I need mm-hmm. all of the evidence, though is that AP English and AP History, especially, have now are driving people away from the humanities in high school Mm -hmm. because they've become like ideological indoctrination spaces. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that that is the beginnings of sorting people into what will become the PMC. That is part of the meritocratic endeavor of it. I thought Christopher Lash had a very savvy read on this in the 90s about how the meritocracy is actually a brain drain for the working class as well. And that process often begins in these AP spaces. You know, 10 years before your son has that experience, I am sitting in a classroom with his mother. David Coleman's mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. David Coleman's mother. That's right. Who becomes right. Um, Obama's education star, who's now the college board president. Yes, right? absolutely. And David Coleman's mother, Liz Coleman, was the president of my alma mater, Bennington College, one of the more notorious slacks, I think, small liberal arts colleges. And she had just created this thing called uh, Design Labs. And the idea was to figure out a way to bring the liberal arts education to bear on civic issues. She saw this as a continuation of one of the founders of Bennington's legacies, John Dewey. I was house chair of the house named after him um, (laughs) for a while while I was there. So that's how deep that went there. That was the idea. And I was also taking a class called uh, Why Math, What Math with Jason Zimba. Now, Jason Zimba eventually leaves Bennington, 
to go create the math common core standards almost immediately after running this class because Bennington doesn't offer tenure importantly. So he goes off to do that. Fewer, clearer, higher. That was his, that was his mantra. Fewer, clearer, clearer higher. That's what he wanted the math standards to be. It sounds like Scientology, but yeah, okay. he was like these. There need to be fewer standards. They need to be clearer to students, and they need to be higher standards than what we have now. And in being in class with Jason, what I can say is that he was very gifted at mm -hmm. teaching in that way and giving people math skills that were useful in everyday life. And I think he wanted his talents to be made manifest at the national level because mm. he was right in the estimation of his own superiority in relaying those skills and mm -hmm. absolutely wrong about his ability to bring that to fruition mm -hmm. now, on a mass scale on a mass scale gives high quality teaching of math high mass quality scale. teaching of math i mean there are all sorts of problems at scale with this. People have a hard time thinking about scalability in general. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm sitting there with Liz Coleman and Ken Himmelman, who's the Dean of Admissions. They're running something called Rethinking Education. Rethinking Education is where the Common Core is born. Mm -hmm. Because so many people, that course, that class ends up running for all four years of my time at Bennington. I'm there for only one year. Mm. But most, not most, many of those people, myself included, end up either working for David Coleman in creating the English language arts standards or writing the lesson plans for the state of New York based on those ideas. Now, I'm in the second category. I had an ex-girlfriend who also now works for the college board, probably still under David Coleman, who so, worked on uh, the So people are right, right? It is a con conspiracy theories are right. There is yeah, a tiny is... cabal of people who are determining, like, and we're profiting from yeah. public funds and determining what happens to Absolutely. millions the, of people. The way it worked is the appointed regents of New York this is what my memory is saying, so I might not have this down 100% correctly. The appointed, uh, not elected, regents of New York public education had a certain amount of cash from the state to spend on a consulting company that could deliver to them the lesson plans they needed because they did not have their infrastructure to do it. That ended up being a company called Public Consulting Group. That's who I work Great public-private partnership. Yes, it's, it's in that mode. Importantly, as a lesson writer, I never spoke to a single person who was working on the test that my lessons led up to. We were actually forbidden from talking with those people. No one ever explained why. Do think, why? why do you think so? Okay, no one explained. No one ever explained why. It was a very PMC environment, let's say. I walked into that job fresh out of bouncing at nightclubs and working at a gym in Tallahassee, Florida, and living pretty close to the poverty line. It was very hard for me to reassimilate into white collar life. I was also not good at the job, like in case this episode blows up for some reason. <laughs> like, I should clarify, I was a really shitty lesson writer and I almost got fired three times. So. I'm not talking about myself as this like smart person who actually had it all figured out and was like punished for thinking outside the box or anything like that. And what I learned while working that job was I got to see how the sausage would get made. All right, so we got the standards from David Coleman's company. I forgot what it was called. The Student Achievement Partners, I think, was something like yeah, that. SAP. Something, ter something terrifyingly like importantly. Before I started working for PCG on this, SAP and its ended its relationship with Public Consulting Group because they thought PCG was basically incompetent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They were right. So I have to give them credit for that, is they understood that it was going poorly and they mm -hmm. backed away. They didn't want to be part of whatever was going to happen there. So let that let the record show. However, the way it would work is we would be mailed a series of books pretty much without explanation. And they would mm -hmm. say, these are the books you're going to use to create a unit. And the unit should probably- unit. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. teaching unit. And they should probably have these themes involved. And sometimes it made sense. You'd get Throne of Blood and Macbeth. 
Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, great, I'm going to get to know some scenes of Macbeth and Macbeth really well, and I love Kurosawa, so this is awesome. But other times, it was just a random scattering of texts, and it was actually my first day that I knew that I was in trouble. Like, I'd jumped through all the hoops, I'd finally made it. I was a true believer that education was the economic equalizer, mm-hmm. right? I came from a liberal family. That's just what you believe. It's a tenet mm-hmm. of faith, yep. right? And we're sitting there trying to create a lesson plan based around the Parsley Massacre between the border of the Dominican Republic and Haiti. And what happens is Haitians flee to the Dominican Republic because of whatever Papa Doc's doing. And a Trujillo's military is there to greet them and ask them to say the word Parsley. And if they say it in a Haitian accent, they just murder them. Yeah. It was just absolute travesty, right? And we have some... So this is for history coming. No, this right is now. for English, right? So that is the context and of some of the writing that we're looking at. Okay. But because of the you just have to read the text closely thing, you can't actually write in what the teacher is supposed to do to explain this context to them. Wow. So we need a way to communicate to the students how brutal Papa Doc was, right? And there is voluminous, wonderful literature from Haitian authors who have written on this theme. Yeah. And we start looking into it. Well, the thing is, is Papa Doc was psychopathic and incredibly cruel and did horrific things to people. You're immediately going to run into trouble at a content level with parents who don't want grotesque things being taught, allegedly. Right. That is the risk that the people who are trying to get the already unpopular Common Core turned into actual lessons. That's their major fear, is that parents will push back at PTA meetings about the content of the course. So one of the women who's in charge of it says, can anyone find me a toned down reading of Papa Doc's reign in Haiti so that we can include it in the literature? And I was like, this is not going to go well, whatever. It's like, this is day one for me. And I was just like, oh shit, like I'm in huge trouble, you know? ran into similar problems around the letter from Birmingham jail because you're not allowed to use outside sources to contextualize exactly which members of the clergy MLK is speaking to, what the national mood is, Mm -hmm. how he's being received as somebody. You can't figure out how to put this rightfully canonical piece of American literature Mm -hmm. into the context it would be by which it could be appreciated Mm -hmm. by young students. Mm who have barely been alive and to have limited grasp on history itself, right? So, so what, what that reflects for me is this investment that Coleman learned in at Yale and that I did too, was that the text is the context. Which is, by or, the way, how it was at There's nothing outside of the text. So if a text is a great piece of writing, then you should just be able to focus on it myopically and untangle its complexity, you know, context be damned. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is trickle-down literary theory because David Coleman sucked up to Obama or Obama, you know, they had a mutual suck-up situation and they wanted to transmit these values because this was smart as opposed to the dumb standards of No Child Left Behind. It's just unbelievable. Exactly. And the idea is that you would create a smart tier of middle-class kids who pass through the intellectual gauntlet of these types of lesson plans, which culminate, at least in New York, this was true at the time, I don't know what it's like now, Mm -hmm. with a high-stakes testing regime Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that will sort them into the type of people you want managing the country. Importantly, the thing that people always sheepishly acknowledged is we never heard anyone from working class communities in New York report back to us on just how the curriculum was doing. Mm-hmm. Did, did you hear any reports back from anyone? At, we heard, uh, I mean, like White Plains, New York and shit. Right, right, like, right. You know what I mean? Okay, got it, got Suburban it, got it. or right. high performing public urban right. schools right. that have a right. good tax bracket. You know, the deal. Right, right. Okay, those, that's, what that's you'd where expect. you're getting feedback, yeah. So my so my feeling about this is I mean, that so we've had like a generation be indoctrinated in this kind of decontextualized reading, but the PMC is up the ante now and said you know it's also a place where you're going to learn empathy and ethics and yes. our liberal politics, 
And young, smart people, men, boys like my son and his friends, they're going to run away from that because a lot of that, like in the anecdote that I talked about, is actually talking about like how bad it is to be a boy and how mm -hmm. bad it is to actually have a different perspective from like Hillary, PMC, boss, girl boss feminism. That, so I'm for gender equality. I don't, and you know, but I can't say that I'm a feminist according to any of these standards that the PMC has put into place. But the thing that also happens like within this horrible regime is that any notion of aesthetic experience or yeah. skepticism or like historical, um, like big picture, like the totality understanding of what like literature, the aesthetic experiences, all that is gone. Like nobody discusses that. I met so many people. I myself like did not come from a very culturally capitalized family, but like it was in literature that you explore the notion of like the ethical behavior to the other with regard to sacrifice, violence, all these things that are, you know, hard to deal with in real life with your parents and as you're growing up in mm -hmm. this like in, in and and you're a teenager, right? You but you're gonna take away sacrifice, and you're gonna tell every, and you're gonna take away violence, mm -hmm. and you're gonna tell people like there's this one way of reading that is about very sanitized, and I think even more than when you were doing this, extremely like um, liberal dogma, grievance culture way of looking at any intersubjective relationship. So any smart kid is going to be like, I don't want to be a part of this. Like this is, I, you know, I, it's going to fill you with unease. Mm -hmm. Now, if you go to a private school, like the really, the super wealthy do, you have, you know, classes of 12 people you have in English. They, they don't worry about these standards. You have these kids exploring, um, you know, literary ideas. And these are the last places where Dewey's idea that every child was a researcher and an artist are still being employed. So from the Chicago Lab School to Little Red Schoolhouse to St. Anne's mm -hmm. to, you know, every time to around here, Pegasus to all of these schools that cost, you know, 50 to 65K a year. There you will be paying someone to treat your child like the artist that Dewey wanted every child to be treated like, right? So you have this aesthetic experience recorded there. So you think, oh my God, they're, they're really reading Homer there. They're really thinking about the classics, but no, these places now have become hyper-woke themselves. At least in a small 12-person seminar, you know, you can have greater debates. I'm not saying that, you know, it, within these, you know, feeder schools to the elite, private universities or prep schools, like some great thing is happening. No, thinking and, you know, critical thinking, which has now become a complete cliche, is better preserved in some of these situations, but it's not really defended by these preparatory schools either. In fact, like Little Red Schoolhouse has gone back to segregating their students for African-American white students because yep. the African-American students were very unhappy about the way that they were being treated in these classes. So their solution, segregate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so my personal experience in, in tutoring elite high schoolers in Los Angeles, I can report that what I've heard is that especially after the summer of 2020, mm -hmm. the diversity, equity, whatever thing, officers are now playing a major role in the school and that is having deleterious impacts on everything, basically. So I'm going to so I'm going to make this proposal. Like we're going to see an, an even more pronounced collapse in the um, humanities majors at, at the college level. And so now the tragedy of this is that people express concern at my level, like professors and administrators. Mm -hmm. They don't see the deep reasoning. They're also terrified of DEI, so they're just all you know working with compliance and the atmosphere of fear and anti-intellectualism around humanities and social and the arts is going to just continue to proliferate and we are and 
at least in my institution, like all institutions in America right now, the English and um, history majors will continue to drop. This is like the numbers are like going down by 40%, mm -hmm. 75% in some cases. And I heard this rumor that at Stanford, there were only like 11 English majors left. Now you have a lot of full professors like me, you can't get rid of them because you have they have t we have tenure right but there's not going to be hiring in these departments and at a time when we really need like historical and sort of aesthetic engagements with the world since everything is so mediated and googleized and suppressed we're losing that in the institutions itself so mm -hmm. i'm very very pessimistic i think i am looking at the end of my profession as i know it and I don't see anyone who's able to really look at things in the face and do anything about it. Because, you know, the logical outcome of all of this is only socialism will save the humanities. And no humanities professor, very, very few, really can like take that next step. Because within socialism, you can have um, freedom from market forces and the the left reinstitutionalization of universal suffering mm -hmm. and and solidarity. And you know what? We're so PMCIs. Like ninety nine point five percent of my liberal colleagues would not be able to. Um, underwrite that i mean partially because they say oh my god that excludes like some identity people or i can't you know it's so bernie bro-ish or you know they would have something wrong or like it's not you know universalism is so oppressive so there's like <laughs> within, you know like the total picture no one we can't know the total picture well it's like we can try Mm -hmm. But you've been told that it's not important. Like what you were describing about the Haitian Dominican thing. It's like, no, we can't know that total picture. So let's just try to get this moment of encounter. Mm -hmm. That's really important now in really like hyper liberal situations is that people are really interested in encounter, like the encounter of the colonizer and the colonized, the encounter mm -hmm. of the Dominicans and the Haitians completely out of context. Like what happens in that encounter? Mm -hmm. Well, so the the debates that we should be having about what is happening to the professions, about how we're teaching, about what our place in society, we're not having any of those debates. Zero. Mm -hmm. Zero. There is no real reckoning. And like people are just ready to sort of let this coast along. Now, even within the universities themselves, like, you know, UC is very powerful. We've looked at, you know, Research One universities, Ivy Leagues, Slacks, they're well-funded well prestige type institutions will still survive. But at the lower tiers, smaller smaller liberal arts colleges, also like smaller, like not so well-funded state schools, they are seeing like the the actual laying off of tenured professors, the actual, you know, suppression of academic freedom at a very, very raw level because their administrators are so much more powerful. Once you say, once you can say, you know, we're having a real um, budget crisis here, mm -hmm. then you can start cutting everywhere you like. The thing about California is we're in this really bizarre situation right now because the UC has always been like, oh, we're so poor, we're so poor, we need more money, which we do because we have more and more students, right? We have, there's a California surplus of $31 billion. Mm -hmm. What we should be doing is going back to zero tuition, 1968, and I would say not just get rid of the SATs, like open admissions and then you fail out you, you you do like open admissions zero tuition if you can't hack it the first year you go to community college right uh, like we just imagine a completely different way of dealing with it because and fund your community colleges completely really really well we're not going to be there that 31 billion dollar surplus in california's coffers i am terrified about how that's going to be spent but we should be getting tuition to zero that mm -hmm. all across the board no one's yeah. gonna, but there's no will for that. There's no, you know, there's well, no, yeah. Well, I also think there's this other thing happening with the humanities that goes 
under-acknowledged, I think, uh, frequent guest of the show, personal friend of mine, default friend, has covered the way that uh, a lot of academics speak leaked into Tumblr fandom culture and became... Well, who is this default friend? Default friend, that's her alias. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and how students arrived like pre-woke to the universities, yes. that it's not necessarily to the universities that made them so. Well, like, so, the, like my um, son's classmate, it was like, have you ever been raped? Like, right, exactly. So there's also this interesting situation where the humanities have also entered a space with the major platforms where I would say there is a mm -hmm. seeping of value and authority into the diffusion of cultural signals and media content that exists in places like TikTok, that exists in YouTube. Now, some of those are great creators, some of them not. But the important thing is, is that students can feel like they already know that stuff well enough or can get it readily available and have no need to put themselves through the rigor of an institutional setting to do that. And there are also people you know, I teach the great books online uh, through a private service, right, f for adults. And one of the things that we keep getting younger people who say, I want to study these works, but I don't want to deal with the institutional straitjacket. Doing so I'm going to get my engineering degree, but my major passion is actually the history of Western thought. But I don't want to take a history course. And I don't want it to be like totally ideological. I don't, I want to have an open free debate with my peers on what I find in this text, but I can't do that. And so we're getting younger and younger, usually young men who show up and, and do our coursework while they're in undergrad That's somewhere. Wild. That's wild. Yeah. I mean, there's this, it's usually, I mean, you know, there's been a feminization of the liberal professions, right? There's a mm -hmm. feminization of um, the humanities and the social sciences. And you could say like, oh, this is, you know, in the name of gender equity. And, you know, the, we're, we're providing a lot of cover for the engineering and STEM departments, which are still <laughs> predominantly male, but, you know, the, it's very, it's very feminized. And you could say like, oh, unalloyed good. I don't say that because <laughs> I think that the white collar professions and liberal professions in a deindustrialized world valorize a certain kind of feminine persona. Mm -hmm. And so we're like actually training workers to be in this kind of white collar world. And a lot of the old values that I think are necessary for class struggle, for solidarity, for for any dignified for, for a healthy, like dignified society, right? Those values are denigrated as toxic masculinity, right? That the and we've taken away the family wage from working from blue collar working class men of all races. African American men have always, of course, suffered the most in, in terms of this. But like industrial jobs gave gave them the possibility of fleeing the agricultural backwardness of the South, the racism, going to Chicago and and L.A. and establishing families in aerospace in um, meatpacking that allowed like some kind of stability. I'm really sounding like a trad person here, but it's okay. That allowed some kind of stability with regard to the working class family. All of that is gone now. So like these values of flexibility, adaptability, like pseudo empathy, pseudo therapy, those kinds of like HR compliant values, those are very, very like valorized actually not within white collar work itself. Mm. It's about adapting to goals you don't understand. It's about complying with HR. It's about not um, um, saying what you think, but being like a people pleaser and, and, and tolerance of others, like not solidarity but this kind of tolerance and women have had these kinds of strategies to deal with this the world that is out of their control like mm -hmm. in classical patriarchal society right you're adapting you're being trying to be flexible you're you're never saying what you think you're you know trying to figure out what the authority wants from you like we should all be free from that particular mode of subjectivity but that is not and that is now like valorized as being like the way, and Lash talks about this very well, this kind of personality that fits in very well with bureaucracy is actually a very feminized um, personality. Now, I don't want to, it's not like an absolute gender divide. No, women and men can be this way. But the idea that you would actually be able to have courage, stand up for what you think, 
fight with someone, like in a kind of, you know, battle of ideas, all of that is gone. So on the left, we've given that up. And so we have like idiots like Jordan Peterson who come up and say these banal things about being a man or being a boy. And like hundreds of millions of people think like, oh my God, this is so, so. One of the reasons is because in school, they are being taught that this, that you have to trash any kind of masculine, like aspirations to being dignified as toxic and mm -hmm. um, oppressive. And then you have to like comply with these ever ship shape shifting values. That means that basically there is no space for any kind of honest discussion, any kind, any notion that you would be able to I don't know, like stand up for what you think. I, I don't, that just sounds no, so banal. It, but it does, but I think that's... It's impossible doing that right now. Nobody's willing to sacrifice in order to stand up for what they think, mm -hmm. especially since, like, the liberal pluralistic ideology is the dominant ideology. So it's mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, I don't need to stand up for what I think. I need to just fit in. Right. I think I always come back to this Bajou quote, which, you know, I'm not a huge Bajou guy by any means, but I thought this was fantastic, where he said, those who have nothing have only their discipline. Which yeah. I just think is a, just a perfect summation of the type of hardness you would need to achieve political struggle or intellectual struggle or anything. And that that is, you're right, devalued in place of docility and compliance. Pseudo-empathy. Pseudo-empathy. Pseudo right. I call it the oligarchy of sob stories. Yeah. Like that's... <laughs> that's what that's what we live in. It's like feel so bad for me. Don't you think I should be president? <laughs> like, yeah, or just uh, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, is the, is the way that it works. So, look, I wanted to ask you this question because I was thinking about it last night in terms of what I wanted to ask you because I think it's a challenging one to answer. I was struggling to answer it myself. Is what do we see? The role should be the role of the humanities in society okay so i'm going to say something like very nerdy and adorny and now and say like <laughs> the humanity should be dissolved so that everyone has a share of literary history leisure to enjoy those things and an engagement and understanding with the struggles that gave us the things like some you know modicum of democracy piped in wa hot water which is a fucking miracle yeah uh, electric being on the electric grid which is a fucking miracle that we can stay up at night mm -hmm. how did these things happen how did we get these baseline things in modernity and how can we improve on them for the um great majority of people like that understanding is something that needs to be integrated into the everyday lives of the masses it's not. And so in substitution for that, we have, you know, Tumblr and we have the alt-right, we have Jordan Peterson, we have YouTube now. But there should be like a, I, I feel like organic public education now from the left is so important right now. Like a return to the great books, a return to an immediate relationship with Marx. There's a hunger out there mm -hmm. for this kind of like non-ends-driven but explorations, negativity even, for you know understanding who we are and how we got here. And everything works to block that. But may, we don't need it to be a specialization. We need to explode that knowledge and give it to everyone. Now, you know, Aaron Swartz died for his attempts to liberate mm -hmm. all of that knowledge from JSTOR. But I feel like one thing that I can do I mean, and this is, you know, just me, but I wish more people in the profession would do it, is stop writing shit that's like proving how smart you are. Start translating your research expertise or historical knowledge into language that's easily accessible and start having debates about the 1619 Project and don't be afraid of the New York Times or and its policing of public history. Like, mm -hmm. there should be public humanities, public history, 
country that's liberated from these institutions and these value and these and their val and their PMC values. So in my ideal world, I guess it would be free public higher education and kind of humanities that was always out like exterior facing, not interior facing. Mm, mm. That makes any sense. But I, I do I was so inspired by my English professors, my, my mm -hmm. English teachers and French teachers and history teachers in high school. Not so much history because it was during the Cold War and that really, history sure, yeah. really fucking sucks. But my English teachers, my French teachers in high school were just really amazing people. I, mean, I went to public high school and one of them very urban, one of them more suburban, but there was just like really high quality of education. And mm -hmm. so I feel, you know, we can go back to that world if there's a massive, if we can call capitalism by its name and say that mm -hmm. capitalism is making us dumb. Mm -hmm. It was funny. I was talking to Micah Meadowcroft a few months ago on the podcast. He's one of the editors over at The American Conservative. And we were talking about, you know, the sort of Scylla and Charybdis of Madison Avenue and Hollywood for any meaningful art <laughs> or cultural expression. Mm -hmm. And I, like he said, in any healthy culture, there should be uh, a movie made about anything Homer wrote <laughs> every four years. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. like, instead of this like Marvel universe <laughs> that mm -hmm. we have a tradition to actually think about we things do. beyond us that is very in touch with human agonism. Do like, who would you die for? What is wor what is passion? What how do where do you belong? What how do you get home? Is home an authentic place anymore? What is the what is the hill that you're willing to die on? Yeah. There is no hill the PMC is willing to die on. You know, mm -hmm. it's pure self-interest. Why is a world of pure self-interest so oppressive? Like why what is that human striving? that makes us want to sacrifice ourselves for the good of not just our families and ourselves, but others. And how is that part of like human, the human tradition and the human experience? Well, I think there's no way in which you can, that any of those answers can be answered by the liberal ideology right now. I've been reading Vasily Grossman's Stalingrad. I finally finished it. It was like 900 pages. I think yeah, I I've I made it halfway through the first one, and then my life got too busy, and I couldn't complete it. But just fantastic writing. What an incredible achievement, right? And people would be like, oh, my God, that was like censored nine times. It's just propaganda. Grossman imagines a Jewish physical physicist, a miner, a Russian miner in the Urals, the lowliest soldier, the Soviet Politburo propagandist, all related to each other in the struggle against fascism. Mm -hmm. A beautiful young woman, her sister who runs an orphanage, a beautiful mercurial young woman, her sister runs an orphanage, her mother is, you know, an atmospheric investigator for factories, and they are all united in this idea of how we are going to fight the Germans. What is our life? What what makes us Soviets? What are our values in contradistinction to their values? Who is going to die at mm -hmm. Stalingrad train station in 1943 that creates the um, turning point in that war? Maybe in the turning point in the war against the Nazis, how all of these people are connecting the way so that Vasilov will die defending that train station. Exactly. Well, and the it's thing is... so it's, incredible. It's astounding. And the thing that I found breathtaking about that book was, I mean, not everyone is like equally happy at their Soviet existence no. by no, any no. measure. No, not it's not propaganda like that. No, yeah, exactly. It's, it doesn't have that. I mean, certainly there are World War II era, like Stalinist propaganda films that have that for you if you're right, looking right, for it. Right, but right. this is something on a whole... Other There's order. so much complexity, right? Not everyone is a hero. Some people are trying to get what they can to get out. But there's so much ordinary heroism in just every small act that mm -hmm. the Russians are performing. Just getting milk for someone. Not, you know, not looting a farmer's house when you're billeted in that farmer's house. Mm -hmm. Sleeping on a plank because you don't want to sleep on the farmer's bed. Not because you're so heroic, you actually are afraid of getting lice but you let the farmer sleep in them. these like small moments of like both heroism and cowardice or, you know, heroism and neurosis that 
they build up in the end to this incredible event that is collectively um, that is collectively achieved, mm-hmm. which is really the battle for the Stalingrad railway station. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think about this. Um, it's so funny. I've been, I've been rereading. I talked to Mary Harrington last night and I, for the podcast, and I brought this up, and it's just been on my mind because I've been rereading Thucydides. And there are these splendid moments where, you know, Thucydides recreates what Pericles says to the Athenians when they first suffer. You know, the Spartans burn their fields after they retreat to their city per his plan. And then a disease breaks out because they're so clustered together. And he knew that the first, like, flushes with pain they felt, they would immediately resent him and the strategy for how to win this war. And there was, there was this great moment where he's basically like, look, I knew this was coming. I knew you guys would do this. But remember what you decided. We all agreed that we were going to get into this war together. Mm-hmm. Now, why do I bring that up? The only reason he can say it like that is because of the radical nature of the first democracy the world ever knew. Mm-hmm. And everyone he's talking to of course, only men, only only mm-hmm. Athenian-born citizens, but still, the demos nonetheless has to admit to their own culpability and their decision mm-hmm. to bear out this plan. And what is frustrating about this compliance world we live in, the HRification of everyday life, is that it obfuscates culpability. And there can be no even direct, thoughtful scolding of someone's knee-jerk reactions, right? Mm-hmm. Or there can be no, perhaps, legitimate frustration with the loss of something that you loved by taken by your enemy and the person who perhaps convinced you that that might be a good thing mm-hmm. to experience, mm-hmm. right? And instead, it has become this diffuse game of tit-for-tat, ever more extreme positions that seem to lack thoughtfulness, skin in the game, and mm-hmm. some sort of mutual the mutuality of democratic agonism. Yeah, it's all virtue hoarding. It's like who yeah. can be more virtuous than the next person? And it's not real virtue. It's like it's like self-satisfaction and mm-hmm. how I can make you feel more smeared with guilt and me more self-satisfied. And mm-hmm. so the, what you're describing is this moment when like there's a collective realization of responsibility, which mm-hmm. is really important in democracy. Like we signed on for this, we have to see this through. It will make us suffer. Mm-hmm. We can't. We can't even execute that on the tiniest level at this point. And we ping pong between um, one party and another that just cater to corporate interests. We have no idea of majoritarian mass politics. I mean, everything that we've talked about today really affects the lives of like let's say i'd say 10 percent of the population because Mm -hmm. they're determining what the 90 percent the rest of the people are experiencing and we don't understand like the interests of the majority like most people don't go to college and get introduced to this woke thing most people are trying to survive in Mm -hmm. um, a not very good climate. Most people want to take care of themselves and their families. They want to have some modicum of dignity. Left politics, I mean, the conservatives are another thing, but has become so far divorced from the demos, from Mm -hmm. the mass. You know, they have contempt for the masses, contempt for the people who haven't been to a small liberal arts college and can speak their language. And that's what really upsets me the most about my class. And mm-hmm. it pretends to do good while having the most deep-seated contempt for working-class and blue-collar people. And for and the only kind of people they like to help are people who are so disempowered that they're passive objects of charity. Yes. And that is and and they're terrified of actually like majoritarian rule or you know appealing to the majority or even having a conversation with majority all of their specialness is about like trying to restrict their world to that 10% because what 
if we say 67% of Americans haven't been to college, and let's say so that other 33% happen go happen to college but among that 33 percent like i'd say one percent goes to elite private universities or and then like maybe three percent go to slacks mm -hmm. together so like th that three percent divided between elite private universities and small liberal arts colleges that's a tiny proportion of the oh, population yeah. and they have an inordinate amount of power over how we live our lives what we see on our screens and what we think of politics as being. Mm -hmm. So one of the things about a podcast like this, or you know, this alternative media, I don't like to think about this para mediatic space is that there's finally some place like for people to talk, like you and me to talk to each other. I'm like thinking it's just catharsis right now because mm -hmm. we're all like living in this tragic situation. And at least there's some spaces where you experience some kind of catharsis. Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, right now, um, on our Patreon, we're just doing a read through, we did a read through of Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue, the whole book, we're doing Christopher Lash's The True and Only Heaven. Mm -hmm. We have some books on theories of history and a historiography of the history of history that oh, we're going to look so you're at doing the public education. So we're trying to provide that to the extent that we can, because we think that there is a huge deficit of context. And that's ultimately what this podcast has been about, is trying to understand beyond the most immediate answers recommended or the sort of more memed explanations, what the hell is going on. Mm -hmm. And I hope that our discussion of Common Core and its long-term impact on the state of higher ed and the humanities in general for our society can provide that to people. It's so. such an incredible tragedy. It's yeah. such an incredible tragedy. And you and I have been witness to it in two different spots, but it's so hard to get the total picture. And they and all of liberal ideology doesn't want us to have the total picture. So just having these two points of view that you and I have gets us closer to a total picture. Not the total picture, but some kind of like approach towards what actually happened to public education in English, let's mm -hmm. say in, in English in the past 15 years. And, and that I hope will become, you know, the roots of someone, you know, who's interested in these things thinking, oh, English doesn't have to be like this. You know, humanity is different. Yeah. There, there's a better way of thinking about these things. Like, I can, I, I can ask these big questions. I can't tell you like how many people I, I know in who I've met recently came to Marx through Homer. Mm -hmm. Why had we and, and we're about to trash the classics completely in the United States. Totally, now. I had a fascinating, fascinating seminar the other night on Aristotle's politics. And there was somebody who is very right libertarian and somebody who is obviously left egalitarian in the classroom, both women. And we were, you know, when you run a seminar, you have to figure out how to create a space where those people can meet on common terms to understand what's going is on in the text. this your great book seminar? Yeah. And that can be a difficult thing to do when they're opposed things. And what I realized in the conversation is that we were ultimately having a very long conversation. And this sounds obvious, but when it happens in the context of a seminar, it can be revelatory for people, mm -hmm. is that it was the debate over property and the power of property itself. And the pitfalls of trying to like redistribute, which can create other power dynamics that the people who would like to don't like. At the same time, the people who want to just hold on to it create other problems that they themselves would not <laughs> like to sign on for. And how do we reckon those by mm -hmm. thinking about the way a constitution is made and the way it constitutes a people? And like, mm -hmm. how do we understand Aristotelian political science? in that framework and as an iteration of an ongoing conversation mm -hmm. in the West about this very problem, right? And once it could be put in that way, it became a space where people could have some distance from their own perspective mm -hmm. to understand it as part of a context that is beyond their personal commitments. And that they're partaking of certain traditions and thought. Exactly. And that's so important. Exactly. Because there's also the humility like that comes with that. turn up on Tumblr. That. 
Yeah. And like suddenly like declare themselves, you know, other kin, you know. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And they were people who one person was very interested, very, very concerned, rightfully so. You and I would agree about the way the poor and working class get treated and how disempowered they are. And another person was very, very worried about what the state can do to families and how it can break apart what someone has allegedly in service of helping someone else. I was like, these are fantastic points of view that need to be arrogated you know, that need to come into contact with each other because this debate isn't for the purposes of that seminar, it can't, like should not be settled. It should be explored and people should have to come to their own conclusions after that exploration. Well, that's the highest form of liberalism that is not to be found in universities right now. Yeah. Tragically. So I think we'll, we'll end stop it. That. Yeah. Yeah. We'll thank end it there. So much. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for coming on. Where can people uh, find you, find your work? Um, Richard Hoarder's The Case Against the Professional Managerial Class was published by the University of Minnesota Press, but it's open access, available on Manifold as well. It's a $10 book, though. It's very short. You can put it in your pocket and read it. I also published a piece on Cat in Catalyst about mm -hmm. the alleged racial profiling at Smith College. Catalyst oh, is yeah. subscription only, but I think it's that piece is very, very pertinent to what we're talking about today. If you are listening to this podcast, reach out to Emmett and I can send you a copy of my article. And he'll reach out to me because it it's about the class race confrontation at Smith College and I published it this spring and because it's behind a paywall it hasn't gotten as many reads as I would like and uh, I really hope that more people will and uh, if you're interested in these topics that you'll read it so yeah, um, reach out to Emmett and I'll send you and I'll share it with him and he can share it with you okay amazing okay well stay safe out there guys and we'll see you next week thank you
devils just stay at the bottom Trying to dig their way out Foundations never laid 